Kelsey, we are so, I know, you and I, we're both, we are so excited because for this episode, we have the opportunity to talk with Victoria Schwann. <laughs> well, we've been sending each other like excited emojis for like the last three, three days. We're like, how many more excited emojis? Or, you know, gifts. Yeah, we're like, how many okay, things can we come 10 up hours with? till we get to interview yeah, her. Right. <laughs> okay, so we'll do your formal introduction. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) So, Victoria B.E. Schwab is the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books, including the acclaimed Shades of Magic series, the Villain series, Monster of Verity duology, Cassidy Blake series, and the Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I love this part of your bio, like when you're not haunting Paris streets or trudging up English hillsides, you live in Edinburgh, Scotland and is usually tucked into the corner of a coffee shop dreaming up monsters. We are That's real. the part of the bio I, I, I like. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's get rid of the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we are thrilled to welcome Victoria Schwab to the first 50 pages. There's just so much about the invisible life of Addie LaRue to explore. Big themes and small moments But before we get too far, for those readers who haven't read this book, Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about the story? Of course, of course. So The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is the story of a young woman uh, living in a small village in 18th century France who realizes that she is going to die in the same place she was born without ever seeing the outside world. And so in a moment of desperation, she makes a deal with the devil to be free, to live forever, because she can't fathom having enough time. Time is going so quickly. And the devil turns her down. He doesn't want to do the deal because he only gets the soul after the deal is done. And if she lives forever, deal will never be done. And so in this moment of desperation, Addie says to the devil, you can have my soul when I don't want it anymore. And sensing an opportunity, the devil agrees to let her live forever. And in exchange, he curses her to be forgotten by everyone she meets. And so it's a story of her existence over 300 years, trying to leave her mark on a world that doesn't remember her, and her life over one year in New York City when she meets a young man who does. <laughs> like feeling like I'm experiencing it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> So this book is your 20th published novel, is that correct? Yes, And it, it took is. you 10 years to write. Um, yeah. Can we talk about like what were the things that you needed to bring this story that you had been sitting mm-hmm. with um, for so long? What were those things that you needed to bring this story to life? Yeah, it's kind of a weird paradox to be like, this is this novel took so long, but I also wrote 19 other books. And I think it's an illusion that we have that things happen linearly, that you write a book, you finish it, you write the next book, you finish it. And so I actually had the idea for The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue before my very first novel was published. And then this would become published as my 20th novel 10 years later. So 20 books, 10 years, just for people to have a time frame there. And obviously not all of them took 10 years. I, I'm always definitely struggling with self-doubt and with feelings of inadequacy. And so kind of the first hurdle that I ever have to face when I'm sitting down to write a project is 
being in my own way. And I had a really interesting experience with Addie LaRue because I was publishing other books. I had, I didn't have a need to publish Addie LaRue. I had other books coming out. I didn't have this massive swath of time to fill. And, and I had this idea and I began to piece it together very slowly over time uh, as my other books were coming out. And about five years in, I had all the pieces that I need. I had the beginning, the middle, the end. I can't write a book without an ending that I'm in love with. I had most of the shape of the characters. I had kind of my motifs. And yet, I didn't write it. And I would say years five to eight on that journey, I it wasn't because I didn't love the story. It's because I loved the story and I was increasingly aware of the fact that I would only get to tell it once and, and I didn't want to do it wrong. So I kind of became paralyzed with fear of not being able to tell the story as it was in my head. And we can talk about the difference between a story as it exists in your head and on paper, because there is a really big difference there. I didn't want to lose what was in my head. I didn't want to make it flawed by putting it down on paper. And it wasn't until I turned 30, which is kind of an important age in the book, this, 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 this idea of the cusp of artificial adulthood, when you're told you suddenly should know everything that you're supposed to know. Um, I turned 30 and I realized, oh, I'm going to die without writing this book. Not, not, I'm, I've written all these other books, but I will die without writing this one because in the pursuit of, of perfection, I will end up with nothing. And so I had to decide, do I care about perfection and ending up with nothing? Or do I care about getting some version of this story down on paper and making it the best that it could be? And so a large part of the reason it took 10 years was I simply had to come to terms with my my inability and my ability to tell the story that I wanted to tell. It just There's so much really about mm-hmm. the book. Um, and you've given us so many ideas to explore in this story. Um, and of course, I don't do spoilers, so I don't you know, <laughs> want to go too far. But some of my favorite ideas include the way that you approach the concept of a Faustian bargain from a woman's perspective. Yeah. And you really make the reader think about time in the story and the comforts of our lives, um, about intimacy and the question about what carries you through. Um, mm-hmm. And I also really liked the way that you wrote about Addie and Henry's sexuality, um, the way that you incorporate what you have called a casual queerness to the story. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm curious, what were the ideas, you know, all of my favorites being said there? Not all of them, I'm a, a, the top of my <laughs> She had list. to distill it down. I had to distill it yeah. down. Um, but what were the ideas that you had the most fun exploring while writing this book? That's such a great question. I mean, one of them is definitely the concept of this Faustian bargain. I've always wanted to write one, and, and I would read all of these Faustian bargains that come up in Immortality Tales in general, Interview with a Vampire, and you look at these men who live forever, and they essentially get bored because they see everything there is to see, they do everything there is to do, go everywhere there is to go, screw everyone there is to screw, and then they exist in this like existential ennui. And I just thought... The absolute luxury of moving through the world unencumbered, like with kind of the agency and the power, is a narrative that you cannot mold against a woman's body. 
Because even if you live forever, you're still living in a world that perceives you in a very specific way with limitations. And so I was really curious, even without the curse side of it, how Addie was going to move through the world. And I specifically wanted her to present extremely feminine. I didn't want her to be able to simply um, don men's apparel and pass as a man for these centuries. In fact, she she can't get away with it. She can only get away with it at night and from a distance. <laughs> it doesn't work up close because I was really intrigued by the different ways in which women already had their agency stripped away before you add a curse to it. So the Faustian element as crafted onto a female form was something that really interested me. Another thing that I was deeply excited by is the relationship between art and memory. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking so much about how do we leave a mark on the world? Well, obviously, as a writer, it's something that we think about a lot from a perspective of storytelling and what what we leave behind. But I was also just, I think I'm fascinated by this idea. It's one of the quotes from the book, ideas are wilder than memories. But what constitutes inspiration? What constitutes an idea? And so even though, and I don't feel like this is a spoiler, this is just kind of one of the big motifs of the book is even though Addie can't be herself remembered, she can be interpreted by artists and therefore inspire others. I mean, it's a, it's a muse narrative in that way. And I was really interested in what constitutes interpretation you know, the limitations of photography and film versus abstract and, and painting. And, and so one of the things that was so exciting for me from her perspective was to figure out how to leave a mark through art and have that be a kind of inheritance. And it's an inheritance that I think is also incredibly feminine because it doesn't rely on ego. You know, she's not the artist, she's the inspiration. So Addie herself never gets to take credit for anything. And that's something that the devil assumes will work to her disadvantage. He assumes that she will want glory because most of the people that the devil does deals with want glory, want to be remembered. He He's convinced that that is all humans want. And so one of the ways Addie's able to undermine her entire relationship with the devil over the course of the book and is undermining the idea that we only exist for the sake of glory and not for the sake of existing itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'm just, I'm just, just listening. listening. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I will say the third element that was really important and the casual queerness is obviously huge for me. And I feel like could have its own category to talk about just the sense that I didn't come out when I was in my teens. I, I don't really need a coming out narrative. What I need as a, as a queer adult is a queer existence narrative is a taking up space narrative is a queer normalcy. And so it's really important to me in my stories that there's a sense of queer normalcy and queer space being held. But I think the third thing that was really important to me was Henry's character, because I really also wanted to explore mental health. And I specifically, Henry is designed as me. He's essentially my proxy in the narrative. I gave him a lot of my struggles and a lot of my philosophies about mental um, kind of anxiety attacks and depression as storms, as moving through things. And why I wanted to do that is because Addie LaRue is a, a relentless optimist. She's somebody who can find one small thing to hold on to to get her through until tomorrow. She operates on the belief that tomorrow she will see something else that will make the world be worth living for another day and another day and another day. And Henry struggles 
in a very different way and doesn't necessarily have the same degree of inherent optimism. And so I really wanted to explore this idea of who finds us in our weakest moments and what does that weakness look like and what is the strength that we learn to hold on to to get through. And sometimes I think when you're, re- as a reader for me, when you're reading a book, you, if the author does it well, you have, you know, this feeling uh, that carries you through um, the story. And until someone puts like a name on it or words to it, you don't, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you just know the feeling. Um, and you have mentioned um, with Addie, the phrase that when I heard you say this in a different interview, I was like, yes, that that's it. Um, it was this stubborn hope and defiant joy. And I yeah. think that's one of the things that just really drew me to Addie's character. But you do fall in love with Henry throughout this story Mm -hmm. because of his struggles. Yeah, I mean, he's the only human character in the book. I mean, if you're looking at it, there are obviously minor characters. But if you're looking at it as as a triangle and you have Luke at one point and Addie at one point and Henry at one point, Henry is the only human. And I made him truly as human as possible. And it's important to remember that Addie was human once. But by the time she meets Henry, she's 320 something years old. And so he's going through a lot of the psychological struggles that she went through, but she went through them 300 years ago. And so I wanted to really make his feel present. His are immediate and urgent and very much in the now. But I will tell you, I have so much pride over the the phrase stubborn hope and defiant joy, because uh, as a writer, we write a first draft and then we write many drafts usually after that. And when I sat down to revise Addie LaRue after the first draft, you know, I, I'd spent nine years writing this, but not avoiding writing it for eight and then a full year writing it to get to nine. And I, I knew I was going to have to sit down and do a first revision for my editor. And that meant taking the story apart. And I was very afraid I was going to lose some heart, lose some of, some of the core. And so on a post-it, I wrote down for the core of Addie's essence so that I would never lose sight of it while I was revising stubborn hope and defiant joy. And those really are the the pinnacle. And I think one of the reasons that the book has resonated so much during this pandemic is this sense that like for the vast, vast majority of us for the last year and a half, we haven't gotten to have big joy. We haven't gotten to have this all encompassing joy, but we can find small joy We can find defiant joy. We can find moments of beauty to help us just get from today to tomorrow. And it's interesting because when I first envisioned Addie a decade ago, she was none of those things. You know, I assumed it was going to be a Faustian bargain narrative. And so I gave her this existential ennui. And I realized very quickly as I started to write the book, oh, no, she's the only like she has full agency to get out. All she has to do is hit the stop button. Right. And it ends. And so in order for her to persist, you know, I think anger can carry her for maybe the first 50 years. Spite does a little bit of work (laughs) there. But after that, when the spite fades, hope is the only thing that persists. And so I had to create the kind of character who would survive and who would persist. And I don't think Henry in the same situation or the vast, vast majority of us in the same situation would persist. But that's what makes Addie so unique is this defiant joy that she has. And in the book too, you you mention, but you don't you don't um, get into 
the the depth of the story, but the madness that she. Oh yeah, you know, the, and you're like, of course there would be madness to yeah, to how live. How could there this not way. be after yeah. 300 years? Yeah, but I appreciate that you just kind of let that for us to imagine. In yeah, I mean, I was certainly tempted. I was yeah. certainly tempted, but I think you know that's one of the difficult things about working on a narrative that spans 300 years is I needed Addie to have a specific arc. So I picked specific years to create a kind of, you know, it's 300 years, which you can break down really into three centuries, which you can each break down into an era of Addie's life. Uh, She kind of grows in different ways over each of those 100 year segments. And so I, I knew that it wouldn't fit in for the arc that I was building for her, which is in many ways a relation to Luke arc, a relation to the devil arc. But I, and I knew I was going to spend a lot of time on the mental health side of it from Henry's perspective, but it would have felt very disingenuous to not at least nod to the fact that there were definitely multiple times in those 300 years where you would go mad with it. I very rarely go back to a book once I have finished it. There are only a handful of books that I have reread, um, but I recently started listening to the audiobook version of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and I would just like to say I am in love with Julia Whalen's storytelling. <laughs> she adds such depth that I didn't know could like be there. Um, so she's an incredible narrator, for sure. But I also think that because of your background in poetry, and your writing style that this book is just an amazing audiobook. So for any listeners who haven't read this book, if you don't want to read it now, I don't know. <laughs> Julia Whelan is an incredible gift. And I will tell you, like, I was already a fan of her work. And I, we had this very long lead up to Addie LaRue. And so I kept telling my publisher, I really want Julia Whelan to do the audiobook. I really want Julia Whelan to do the audio. And they're like, we'll get around to at like, we'll ask her. She's very busy. We just don't know. And like the day I didn't even put forward another name. I was like, just please, if I can have one ask here, I will be just like an angel in every other category. Please ask her. And um, luckily, Julia was willing to clear her desk and make room for this and has just been such an extraordinary. I mean, I as somebody who I probably listen to as many audiobooks a year as I read books in printed form. And so that's probably about 60 to 75 audiobooks a year. So I understand the power that an audiobook can have to transcend the shape of the story as the writer has put it to paper. And Julio's take on Addie LaRue is such an addition, is, is just such a gift. So you've referred to yourself as an ornery reader. What does that mean <laughs> to you? Well, okay, so I don't quit books once I've started them, which I should learn to do. <laughs> I um. I, I, but I can't because for me, even if something isn't working, it becomes kind of a craft exercise. I start looking at why it's not working. I, I, I try really hard though to never quit a book. It will take a lot for me. I set a goal for myself about five or six years ago to read a hundred books a year. And this is because I think one of the greatest tragedies that happens is when a writer stops reading. Uh, it happens more often than you would think, or they deprioritize reading. And the fact is, I think that the, of course, you can get an education. There's lots of different ways to to learn more about writing. But from a craft perspective, the best thing that a creative person can do is read. 
And not only read, but read broadly. Don't just read in the genre that you feel most comfortable, in the, in the story type that you feel most comfortable. I try to make sure that I push myself. So for every you know, book or two that I read that I'm confident I'm going to like because it ticks all of my boxes, I read something completely different. I read now between 100 and 150 books a year. Um, I'm always reading. I usually have two to three books at a time, one in each format. And it is the best education I have ever gotten. My, I'm confident in saying that my abilities as a writer have increased exponentially since committing to that goal. And there's no mimicry to it. What it is, is I think that when writers stop reading or only read of the things that they also create, it you're inevitably going to become derivative because you're reading, you're walking down an ever narrowing road. But when you cross pollinate creatively, when you read things from vastly different places, you never know what's going to inspire you. You never know what is going to pluck a string in your head. And so I obviously think reading is an incredible form of escapism, but for anyone who's listening, who's also a writer, I think reading is the best education you can invest in for your own work. So as a reader, you know, you really obviously understand what it is to be consumed by a story, you know, to really become invested in those characters. And from the reviews I've read, and I think Jen's read, you know, in the conversations that I've had with other readers at the library, and from my own experiences with your books, especially the Cassidy Blake series, Shades of Magic, and Annie (laughs) LaRue, that, you know, your readers become wholly invested in your stories, you know, with your characters, you know, wanting more. As a writer and a storyteller, how does that make you feel? I mean, it's incredibly flattering, right? I, I, I can't, I, it's a hard job. It's a, it's a wonderful hobby and it's a very hard job just to be blunt. Like writing is a beautiful thing and publishing is excruciating. Publishing is a very difficult business. And, and so often it's really easy to get locked into this kind of antler style battle between art and business. And I think readers are what keep you sane. Readers are the reminder of why you do what you do. I mean, I I certainly have times when I'm drafting where I think I'd like to just move to Iceland and raise goats, but I, (laughs) then I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just so flattered. It's difficult though, right? Because I'm, I'm flattered and I'm grateful, but also the whims and wills of my readers can't dictate what I work on. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard because you want to work on the things that have the audience and the support. I mean, before Addie LaRue, I would have been crazy to work on anything that wasn't Shades of Magic related. It was by far my best-selling series. After Addie LaRue, I'd be crazy to work on anything that's not Addie LaRue related, (laughs) but I don't have another Addie LaRue in my head. And if you look at what my next book is after Addie LaRue, it's a Crimson Peak meets The Secret Garden. It's a, a weird, very dark standalone novel with illustrations in it, even though it's not really for kids. And um, I just, I think you have to find a balance between being extraordinarily grateful for readers and for their passion, and also remembering that you cannot write to please everyone. And you really can only write with an audience of one in mind, and that audience has to be you. Because at the end of the day, I can't control the market, and I can't control which of my books um, appeal to which readers. I can't really control anything except the words and the story that I'm putting down on paper. And so it has to be something that I believe in and that excites me deeply so that no matter what happens with it from a 
from a marketing standpoint, from a sales standpoint, I never feel like I let myself down. In um, 2018, you gave the Tolkien lecture. <laughs> and I, yeah. I recently watched this on YouTube, and I was truly yeah. moved by what you had to say. Um, it was a great investment of 25 minutes of my time. And then I watched the Q&A after, you. so I spent the whole hour with you. But um, <laughs> one of the things that struck me as most profound that you said was that reading should be an act of love, of joy, of willing discovery. When we force someone across the wrong literary threshold, we risk turning them away instead of ushering them through when you were talking about doors. Um, can you talk a little bit about this and how this idea shapes your work? Of course. I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm a YA author. I'm a middle grade author. I'm an adult fantasy author. And I guess with Abby LaRue, I'm an adult literary author. There's all these gates, all these, all these thresholds. And I think so often we talk about those as the only doors. Um, my, my Tolkien talk was called In Search of Doors. And it's about how in the interest of gatekeeping, in the interest of creating these clubhouses and these boundaries where they don't really exist, they exist from a marketing standpoint, from a bookshelf standpoint in a store, we really do such a disservice to our potential readers. And I mean, this, this all came about for anyone listening, why I'm laughing is because I was asked to give the Tolkien lecture and I have never read Tolkien and I don't really intend to. <laughs> and uh, I never told them. I did not tell them. I did not clear my lecture with them going in. And so um, I'm asked to give this very prestigious Tolkien lecture and I stand up and the entire front row is just teachers, just professors, <laughs> like very white hair, like just like 60 year old white men. Mm -hmm. And I start my lecture by saying, I have never read Tolkien. <laughs> and the whole point with though is that I had been on a panel a couple years earlier. Uh, I was already a best-selling author. I was already um, well-known. And yet I'm on this panel uh, of a conference of which I'm the guest of honor. I say this because of what I will say next, which is that I was on a panel and I admitted that I hadn't read Tolkien. And one of the other panelists turned to me and basically treated me as if I had no place calling myself a fantasy author. Why would I call myself a fantasy author if I hadn't read Tolkien? And I got into a conversation with him afterwards about well, what makes me a valid author then? What is it? And it came down to the fact that for him, growing up, Tolkien had been his doorway into fantasy. And we got into a really interesting conversation about how, okay, we all have a door, but why are we prescribing what shape that door is? For me, that door was Harry Potter. For someone else, that door might have been Susan Cooper or Neil Gaiman. The fact is, there is a strange false sense of gatekeeping about what is valid in each of these categories. Who do you have to like? And, and I think, you know, that's such a way to turn off potential readers. My, my fantasy series, Shades of Magic, is often considered as kind of a gateway to fantasy for people who don't think they like fantasy. And it's because I think I believe in accessibility when it comes to storytelling. And some people seem to believe that accessibility is a negative word when it comes to a category that by being accessible, something is less than its purest form. And I just don't subscribe to that at all. I think what we have to always be doing is making sure that we foster a love of reading, not a love of reading specific things, not a love of dictating what is 
valid to be reading, but a love of reading because you can usher them through the door. And then once they're in the room, you can say, have you read this? Have you read that? Like you can encourage that level of exploration, but we do such a disservice when we prescribe what that door needs to be in the first place. I would literally like to give you a standing yeah. ovation. For that. <laughs> like, I wish that I could take a photograph of the faces of the front row of that lecture <laughs> because it was stony. Uh, but I, I thank you. Just like take yeah. a picture and like put it up on your wall and be like, see. I know. There were not it librarians in that audience. Yeah. <laughs> the librarians would have been giving you a standing yeah. ovation. Like whatever yeah. gets people to read, whatever they want to read. I will admit, well, Harry I Potter see it in my, my own things. Too. Well, that's the thing. I'm 34, so I was 11 when Harry Potter came. I mean, it was it was primed. It was an entire generation's gateway, mm-hmm. and I think that's wonderful. But I mean, I see it in in my own books. I, I, I nothing makes me happier than I had. I was at Texas Book Festival a couple of years ago, and maybe a 10 year old boy, 11 year old boy, came up to me. And he was like, you're my favorite author. And he held out the book for me to sign. And I assumed it was going to be Cassidy Blake. I assumed it was going to be City of Ghosts. Mm-hmm. And it was Vicious, oh. which is like this dark supervillain story series that I have that I would never assume would find its way into this kid's hands. And his father was there with him. And he said, honestly, I'm just so glad that he fell in love with reading with yeah. it. Um, and like, that's the thing, right? Who cares what the what the door is like care about what happens beyond the door if you have to but don't stop somebody from getting through the door in the first place in what ways do you feel that writing in the fantasy genre allows you more freedom as an author Ooh, that's so interesting because i think well i there's two ways to approach that question right is that i get like on my uh, de- like pedantic horse about <laughs> um, about like the difference between sci-fi and fantasy and how like too many people assume that like sci-fi is the one with rules and fantasy it's anything you want whereas fantasy has a huge number of rules as well you're just folded into the world in a slightly more organic way um, I love writing fantasy because it allows you to redefine the norms so I always say it's really fascinating to me when you read a fantasy novel, they have, you know, the entire wealth of options and they've decided to make the world look exactly as it is here. The same power dynamics, the same hierarchies, the same everything. And what that tells me is usually that that writer already sees themselves at the center of a narrative, um, their default state. And so I think it's much more interesting for fantasy to allow us the opportunity to redefine what those norms are. There will always be power dynamics. There will always be hierarchies, but we get to choose what that looks like. So um, I just think it's an incredible opportunity to take people who are so often put on the fringes of a narrative and recenter them to take identities that are so often not given the space you know, to be the chosen one and to really start breaking down those systems. I think fantasy is an incredibly subversive potential genre. And so I like it. I also like that I think we have this idea that fantasy and reality are completely disconnected things when that's not at all the case. They're a Venn diagram, right? Fantasy and reality intersect and overlap. 
I think my favorite stories are the ones when fantasy folds itself directly into our world because I grew up wanting the world to be stranger than it was. And so anytime, I think that's one of the reasons Neil Gaiman's work has always spoken to me so much is because the reason Tolkien doesn't speak to me in many ways is because I will never be able to access that world except through the pages of that book. But I love the kind of story that makes me think I want to go out and go for a walk and find the door that's in my world. I love stories that take the fantastical element and they make it accessible from the world in which we already live. One other quote that I, of course, because I was taking notes during your Tolkien lecture, (laughs) that that really struck me. Um, You said that when we make readers doubt their own reality, even a little, we grant them hope for a different one. And I thought, wow, it's just, you know, and after having um, kind of listened to that lecture, I want to explore the fantasy genre more. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, good. Because it's not, I have, you know, as librarians, we try to read diversely and push ourselves to read things we normally wouldn't. Um, I do abandon books, <laughs> but, but there's a lot, out, lot of good things out there. So it's okay for me to do that. But um, yeah, when I, I heard you say that, I was like, I, I want to explore this more. I'm, I'm of, so glad. Yeah. <laughs> so you I'm already so, kind so of glad. dropped his name a little bit, but Jen and I are absolutely yeah. huge fans of Neil Gaiman. We talk about him yeah. all the time. Yeah, we kind of have it. <laughs> He's incredible. He's one of my into like every episode, I think. Well, I mean, as he should. And he's, I will say, like, I have been so fortunate over the last 10 years for him to go from like probably just my writing hero and me just a fan to him being kind of a friend and mentor figure. And it's probably like definitely aside from having like books and readers, the greatest benefit of what I do. (laughs) I'm like, score. (laughs) I can like talk to Neil now. Um, we, Kelsey and I both watched, um, your conversation, well, one of them yeah. with tour books. Um, and Kelsey said to me after that, she was like, I could listen to these two talk about books all day. <laughs> yeah. I was like, where's that YouTube I, yeah. channel? <laughs> I am such a nerd. Um, I, I'm, I mean, I've had the luxury of meeting Neil several times now and I, I can now make a sentence around him. So I feel like that's really great, but I don't think I'll ever like be a normal person around him. I remember like before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to, um, see him in Edinburgh and I ended up sitting on his living room floor, uh, with Ian Rankin also sitting on his living room floor because Neil was like very bashfully asked if we would like to see some of the scenes from his upcoming show, Good Omens. (laughs) They were not, they were not edited. Like they were not fully polished. And I just, I just like, and we were like eating Indian food on his like living room floor watching Good Omens. And I just thought, this is the weirdest version of my reality right here. (laughs) So cool. And of course, because we only have a couple minutes left, we have to ask, what's next? Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Well, okay. So my next novel, Gallant, comes out in March, and it's the one that's The Secret Garden Meets Crimson Peak. I'm I'm so incredibly excited for it because it's very weird. And it's the kind of book I never would have gotten away with, I don't think, in publishing as a debut or as a baby author like And that's its own privilege to be able to go as strange as I want and as dark as I want. I also have a TV show coming out called First Kill, which is um, 
<laughs> it's about a teenage girl who happens to be a vampire and she falls for a new girl at her school and she decides that she's going to be her first kill. And when she goes to bite the new girl, the new girl goes to stake her in the heart. And it turns out that her crush is a vampire hunter. And it's a super queer um, Buffy that's kind of like what I always wish I had as a teenager. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure. That's <laughs> going to be incredible. And then yeah. I and then I and then heard, shades of magic. Yeah. yeah. I heard whispers that there's yes. a film adaptation too in the works for the invisible light. Yes, for Addie. Ooh. Yes. I mean, this is the thing is TV and film make books look fast, which is an extraordinary thing. TV and film takes forever. But yes, I am very, very excited. There is a film adaptation of the invisible life of Addie LaRue in the works. And cross your fingers and toes. Everything seems to be moving forward exactly as it should. Well, we are definitely going to um, look forward to all of these upcoming, um, all the upcoming creativity that you can give us. Thank you. Um, it has really, you know, personally speaking, and I, I don't want to speak for Kelsey, but I. Yeah, but you can. It has been a delight and a pleasure as a reader to find your work and it has been even more wonderful to be in conversation with you today and i will always remember Addie LaRue. Oh, <laughs> thank you thank you this you know, is this has been wonderful this has been so great we're you gonna ride delight. this high for like the next awesome. like five years <laughs> thank you this has been such a delightful conversation